0: This is the Man of God Network, a podcast of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For other narrations, church history lessons, go to puritanaudiobooks.com. Before I begin reading this review, which is in the biblical repertory in the year 1835, a little bit of background information. Charles Finney had been ordained in the Presbyterian Church in the year 1821, The fact that this review was published in the year 1835, that would have been two years before the Presbyterian Church had split in the year 1837 because of the New Haven theology that had crept in, starting with Nathaniel Taylor, who held the chair of divinity at Yale after Timothy Dwight. That chair had just been formed after Dwight, and there were serious problems in his teaching. Bennett Tyler The person who wrote the biography of Asahel Nettleton dwelt with the Pelagianism that was coming out of the New Haven School in a series of letters on the New Haven theology. From my own research, I cannot tell if Charles Finney had even read Nathaniel Taylor, but remarkably, his theology, in his systematic theology and in his practices in revival, show that he was clearly of the same mindset as the New Haven School. His use of the ancients bench was part of the new measures that Finney was using in revival. The author of this review wrote this when he was just a mere 35 years old, but he went on from being a graduate of Princeton Seminary to teach in mathematics at Princeton College, or the College of New Jersey. Albert Dodd only lived to be 40 years old. But there is a remarkable insight and analytical ability as he looks at Charles Finney's lectures on revival, He also did a review of Charles Finney's sermons and in the end of both of those articles pleads with Finney to leave the Presbyterian denomination saying that whatever you are teaching, it goes against everything that we hold dear in the Westminster Confession of Faith. With that little bit of background information, now I'll read this review which was published in the biblical repertory. The Anxious Seat an altar call. The tendency of the altar call to foster delusion and create false hopes is very evident. There are some persons who are fond of notoriety and ever ready to thrust themselves forward on any occasion or in any manner which will attract to them the notice of others. To such, the anxious seat holds out a powerful temptation. This measure, if used at all, must be used without discrimination. It applies the same treatment to all and does not permit us, according to the apostolic direction, to make a difference, having compassion on some and pulling others out of the fire. While it unduly discourages, and in many cases overwhelms with despair, the timid and diffident, it invites forward the noisy and bustling who need to be repressed. Others, again, will go to the Anxious Seat who are not properly awakened, upon whom, indeed, the truth has produced no effect, but they go because they have been persuaded that to do so is to do something for Christ, end quote, and that it will be, quote, an important point gained towards their conversion, end quote. Mr. Finney agrees with us in supposing that such public manifestations will often be made by persons who have not the feelings indicated For however irrational a man's theories may be, he cannot refrain sometimes out of connection with them from talking common sense. On one occasion, when he is out of his controversial attitude, he says to his congregation, perhaps if I should put it to you now, you would all rise up and vote that you were agreed in desiring a revival and agreed to have it now. And then he goes on to prove to them that nevertheless they are not agreed. Doubtless it would be so, and in like manner will many go to the anxious seat who are not anxious. And a great majority of all who go will go under the influence of erroneous impressions and wrong excitement. Whatever may be the theory of the anxious seat, in practice it is not used for the purpose of making visible and thus rendering permanent the impressions made by the truth, nor is such its effect this is most fully disclosed by Mr. Finney. Those who have been affected by the truth and who obey the summons to the anxious seat will not go with a view of making known their state of mind to their spiritual adviser. They will ordinarily make this pilgrimage to Mecca because they have been deceived into the belief that it is a necessary step towards their salvation and that they are rendering to Christ an acceptable service by thus attending upon an institution which is as good as baptism, or perhaps a little better. The excitement which draws persons of these different classes to the anxious seat, not being produced by the truth, and yet partaken of a religious character, must tend to conduct the mind to error and delusion. Some, no doubt, who in the heat of the moment have taken this step before so many witnesses, will feel that they are committed, and rather than be talked of as apostate through the whole congregation, they will be induced to counterfeit a change which they have not experienced. We have not been surprised, therefore, to learn what is an unquestionable fact, that where this measure has been most used, many hypocrites have been introduced into the church. Many professing godliness, but living in the practice of secret wickedness, and a still greater number through the operation of the same influence, have been led to cherish false hopes. In the mind of an individual who has gone to the anxious seat, an important place will be filled by the desire to come out well in the estimation of the multitude who have looked upon this declaration of his seriousness, and already too much disposed to judge favorably of himself, he will be thus still more inclined to rest satisfied with insufficient evidences of a gracious change every extraneous influence of this kind which is brought to bear upon a mind engaged in a delicate business of forming an estimate of itself must tend to mislead and delude it. The anxious seat. No matter how judiciously managed, is liable to the objection here advanced. It excites the mind and thus urges it forward, at the same time that it thrusts aside the truth the attractive power of which is alone sufficient to draw it into its proper orbit. But the intrinsic tendency of this measure is to lead the mind astray. is very greatly enhanced by the manner in which it is conducted by Mr. Finney and his imitators. The ordinary course of proceeding with those who come forward to occupy the anxious seat is on this wise. They are exhorted to submit to God during the course of the prayer which the preacher is about to offer They are told that this is a work which they can perform of themselves. They have only to summon up all their energies and put forth one Herculean determination of will, and the work is done. A strong pull, as in the case of a dislocated limb, will jerk the heart straight and all will be well. At the conclusion of the prayer, they are called upon to testify whether they have submitted All who make this profession without any further examination are at once numbered and announced as converts. Sometimes a room or some separate place is provided to which they are directed to repair. Those who remain are upbraided for their rebellion and again urged to energize the submitting volition during another prayer. And this process is continued as long as there is a prospect of its yielding any fruit. Does it need any argument or illustration to show that the anxious seat, thus managed, must be a very hotbed of delusion? The duty here urged upon the sinner is not, as we have shown in our former article, the duty which the Bible urges. We're at no loss to understand why Mr. Finney presents the sinner's duty in this form. Submission seems to be more comprised than some other duties within a single mental act and more capable of instant performance. Were the sinner directed to repent, it might seem to imply that he should take some little time to think of his sins and of the being whom he has offended, or if told to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he might be led to suppose that he could not exercise his faith until he has called up before his mind the considerations proper to show him his lost condition and the suitableness of the offered Savior. Repentance and faith, therefore, will not so well answer his purpose. But with submission, he can move the sinner to the instant performance of the duty involved, or, as he says in a Saxon way, can break him down, break him down on the spot, melt him right down, clear to the ground, so that he can neither stand or go and a mental darkness consequent upon this unscriptural exhibition of his duty. And while flurried and bewildered by the excitement of the scene, the sinner is to perform the double duty of submitting and of deciding that he has submitted. Who can doubt that, under these circumstances, multitudes have been led to put forth a mental act and say to themselves, There, it is done, and then hold up the hand to tell the preacher they have submitted, while their hearts remain as before, except indeed that now the mists of religious delusions are gathering over them? Had this system been designed to lead a sinner in some plausible way to self-deception, in what important respect could it have been better adapted than it is now? to this purpose. The text question propounded by the occupant of the anxious seat is not always made as definite as we have represented. Sometimes it is proposed in as loose and vague a form as this, quote, would you not be willing to vote that God should be the supreme ruler, end quote and an affirmative answer to this question has been deemed and proclaimed adequate evidence of submission, and the assenting individual filed off among the new converts. So unbecoming and foreign from the true nature of religion have been the attempts often made by these preachers to produce an excitement, so indecent the anxiety manifested to force upon the anxious sinner some expression or sign which might authorize them to make use of his name, to swell their list of converts, that we can liken it only to the manner in which the recruiting sergeant, by the display of drum and fife and banner, and if this will not answer, by the intoxication of his dupe, persuades him to accept a piece of the king's money, and thus binds him to the service and increases his own reward. The chief difference is that The enlisted soldier soon perceives that he has been caught with guile and bitterly deplores the consequences of his delusion, but the deceived sinner will in many instances remain deceived until he learns his mistake at the bar of the judge. Lest the proclamation upon the most slight and insufficient grounds, that the anxious sinner is a convert, should not act with sufficient power upon his sense of character to make him counterfeit a Christian deportment, or deceive himself into the belief that he is a true disciple of Christ, there is provided an additional new measure, the immediate admission to the Lord's Supper of all who profess themselves converts. It will be at once seen how this measure plays into the rest of the system and assists the operation of the whole. Mr. Finney, to perfect his system, has but to take one further step and maintain that no church has a right to discipline any of its members who have been thrown in by the operation of the new measures. This is evidently wanting to complete his plan which ought to provide some method for retaining his converts in the church, as well as for their easy introduction into it. And why should he hesitate to make this small addition? It is surely more defensible than many other parts of his system. We should not be surprised to find a denial that the set of old, stiff, dry, cold elders quote, that have crept into our churches have any authority to discipline as converts, figuring at large in a neat pattern card which he issues of the newest fashion and measures. Mr. Finney endeavors to show that it is the duty of the young convert to apply immediately for admission to the church and the duty of the church to yield to this application." In Chatham Street Chapel, it seems their practice is to propound applicants for a whole month. But the reason of this long delay is that in a city many strangers will apply, and it is necessary for the session to have opportunity to inquire respecting them. In a country, however, the church will sin and grieve the Holy Spirit by debarring from the communion any who apply, if they are sufficiently instructed on, the subject of religion, to know what they are doing, and if their general character is such that they can be trusted as to their, their sincerity and honesty in making a profession. Great evil, he says, quote, has been done by this practice of keeping persons out of the church a long time to see if they were Christians, quote. No doubt great evil has been done to the credit of his system wherever the converts made by it have been thus tried, but this is the only evil that we have ever known to result from the practice. Under the ordinary ministrations of the gospel, there is much that springs up, having the semblance of piety, but without root, so that it soon withers away." and it cannot be doubted that much more than the usual number of these fair-looking but rootless plants will start up in Mr. Finney's forcing bed. Surely then the voice of wisdom and of duty calls upon the church to wait until the blossom, if not the fruit, shall have appeared, and the seeming but deceived convert has been once admitted within the pale of the church. The motives and means of continued self-deception are so greatly multiplied as to leave but little ground for hope that he will ever be awakened from his false security until the dawning light of another world breaks in upon him. The church also owes a duty to herself in this matter. The addition of unworthy members to her communion by rendering frequent acts of discipline necessary will expose her to distraction within and to scandal without. But these weighty considerations, plainly involving the eternal welfare of individuals and the true prosperity of the church, must all give way to provide for the effectual working of Mr. Finney's system. Better that the church should be filled with the hypocritical and the deluded than that the new measures should lose their credit. Many of Mr. Finney's opinions tend to the same point, to provide for smuggling his converts into the church before they themselves, or the session to whom they apply, can have had full opportunity to judge whether they have undergone a change of heart. There is no need, he says, of young converts having or expressing doubts as to their conversion. There is no more need of a person's doubting whether he is now in favor of God's government than there is for a man to doubt whether he is in favor of our government or another. It is, in fact, on the face of it, absurd for a person to talk of doubting on such a point if he is intelligent and understands what he is talking about though it might perplex a man of plain understanding to conceive how such instruction as this could be reconciled with the scriptural account of the deceitfulness of man's heart yet its meaning and drift are perfectly intelligible its tendency and it would hardly be uncharitable to say its design is to form a bold swaggering peter-like confidence which may preserve the fresh convert from misgivings of mind during the brief interval of a few hours or at most days, which must elapse between his professed submission and his reception into the church. The next thing is to impress him with the belief that it is his duty to apply at once for admission to the Lord's Supper, and this is most fully done. He is told that if he waits, he will probably go halting and stumbling along through life. No, there must be no waiting. Drive on or the tempestuous breeze will die away. Then the church must be taught to throw open her doors and this she is told to do under the pains and penalties of grieving the Holy Spirit if she refuse. Some examination, however, must be held and the result of this might be to show that many of the applicants have been insufficiently or erroneously instructed in the plan of salvation. And see how beautifully Mr. Finney provides for this difficulty, quote, In examining young converts for admission to the church, their consciences should not be ensnared by examining them too extensively or minutely on doctrinal points, end quote. The meaning of the phrase, too extensively or minutely, may be readily understood from the exposition we have given of Mr. Finney's theological system. The church session who should ask of one of these converts, What is the ground of your hope of salvation, might receive for an answer, My submission to God. The world is divided into two great political parties, the one with Satan the other with God at its head, and I have energized a mighty volition and resolved to join the latter and vote in the Lord Jesus Christ as governor of the universe. Suppose the to proceed a little further. Have you been led to see the depravity of your own heart? I know nothing of a depraved heart. All I know on this subject is that ever since Adam sinned, every person begins to sin when he becomes a moral agent. But does not David say, I was shapen in sin? Yes, but the substance of a conceived fetus cannot be sin, and David only meant that he sinned when he sinned. Have you any reason to believe that your soul has been washed in a fountain set open for the remission of sin? I know nothing of any such operation. I have been taught that it is a great error introduced into the church by the accursed traditions of the elders to speak as though in religion there occurred anything like the washing off of some defilement. Upon whom do you rely for strength in the conflict which is before you? Upon the might of my own arm? Do you not pray to God to strengthen you and enable you to discharge your duties? No, it would be an insult to God to pray thus, as though he had commanded me to do what I am not able to perform. Do you believe that God is all-powerful? Yes, that is, I believe he can do some things, and others too, if his creatures will not oppose him. Can he preserve and promote the prosperity of the church? Yes, by taking advantage of excitements. The session, somewhat dissatisfied, we may suppose with this examination, resolved to question the candidate more closely on some of these points. But hold, hold, cries Mr. Finney, take care how you ensnare the conscience of this young convert by examining him too extensively or minutely on doctrinal points. The way is thus laid perfectly open for the entrance of his converts into the church. But how shall he be kept there? There are two new measures proposed by him that might seem to aim at this end, but both of them are inadequate. The first is that they shall be kept in ignorance of the standards of the church they have entered. Young converts, he says, ought to be indoctrinated, but he avowedly excludes from the means of indoctrination teaching the catechism. This would answer if he could only keep in the first ones until he had introduced a majority into every church who should know nothing of the catechism or confession of faith. The other measure proposes that his converts should not be made to file in behind the old, stiff, dry, cold members and elders. No doubt if they could be permitted to take the lead and manage all things in their own way, there would be no difficulty, but there is reason to apprehend that age, combined with Christian experience and closed with official preeminence, will still insist upon its right to direct the young and inexperienced." Nothing could be more evident than that these new measures of Finney are remarkably adapted to form and propagate a false religion. Indeed, we have little doubt that the whole system has originated in a total misconception of the true nature of religion. This charge was, in substance, alleged against Mr. Finney several years since, and substantiated from the only production which he had then given to the public. See a pamphlet published in 1828 entitled, Letters of the Rev. Dr. Beecher and Rev. Mr. Nettleton on the new measures in promoting revivals of religion. This pamphlet contains a masterly discussion of the subject, and though written before the new measures had as fully disclosed themselves as now, it was fully made out to the conviction we imagine of every candid mind Into history. We fear that the continued press of new publications has crowded this pamphlet out of sight it deserves more than an ephemeral existence and we shall be glad if this notice has in any degree the effect of calling attention to it it has never been answered mr finney we are told makes it his rule never to reply to any attacks upon him it should have been added save by bitter viterperations into the pulpit A very convenient principle, this is. It was fully made out to the conviction we imagine of every candid mind that examined the evidences, but its only effect upon Mr. Finney, so far as we can perceive, has been to induce him to throw in an unintelligible paragraph upon the difference between emotion and principle. Quote, One of the first things he says young converts should be taught is to distinguish between emotion and principle in religion by emotion i mean that state of mind of which we are conscious and which we call feeling an involuntary state of mind that arises of course when we are in certain circumstances or under certain influences but these emotions should be carefully distinguished from religious principle by principle i do not mean any substance or root or seed or sprout implanted in the soul but I mean the voluntary decision of the mind, the firm determination to act our duty and to obey the will of God by which a Christian should always be governed, quote. Does he intend here by maintaining that our emotions are involuntary to deny them any moral character? Does he mean to tell us that the emotion of complacency towards holiness is not an adequate or proper motive for the cultivation of holiness in ourselves? Are all those actions which are prompted by our emotions divested of morality or of moral? Are they sinful? And then, what a definition of a principle is distinguished from an emotion? A voluntary decision of mind? A man decides to do some act because he thinks it's right. His decision is a principle. He has stumbled into this errant nonsense over his dislike to mental dispositions. But well, we will not puzzle ourselves or our readers in the attempt further to analyze this mysterious paragraph. Whatever may be its meaning or design, it will not turn aside to charge that the general tendency of Mr. Finney's representations is to give an undue predominance to the imaginative emotions in religion. We are susceptible of two very different classes of emotion, the one connected with the imagination, the other with the moral sense. The one awakened by objects that are grand, terrible, and so on. The other called into exercise by the perception of moral qualities. These two kinds of emotion produce widely different effects upon the animal frame. Let a predominant emotion of terror fill the mind and it will fever the blood. Quicken the pulse. Blanch the cheek, and agitate the whole frame. Each moment that the emotion becomes more intense, the bodily excitement increases, and it may be heightened until life is destroyed by it. But let the mind be occupied with disapprobation of moral evil, and in the intensest degree of this emotion, how feeble in comparison is its effect upon the powers and functions of animal life. This close sympathy of the imaginative emotions with a bodily frame gives them a dangerous preeminence. The same object often calls into simultaneous action emotions belonging to both these classes. The contemplation of a sinful life may call up at once in the mind of a man abhorrence of sin and dread of its evil consequences, and there is reason to fear that without great care the latter feeling will absorb the former." Now it is just here that we think Mr. Finney has erred and gone over into the regions of enthusiastic excitement. He is evidently possessed of an ardent temperament and a calm and gentle excitement. Attending the exercise of the moral emotions disconnected with the imaginative has not sufficient relish for him. It is comparatively tame and tasteless, For the same reason he discards as, quote, animal excitement, end quote, all the gentler feelings, such as like the soft and plaintive music of an alien harp, spread themselves through the soul and dissolve it in tender sadness or pity. He turns from these to the stronger and more boisterous emotions, which, stirring both soul and body, like the sound of the trumpet, can yield a luxurious play and revel of intense sensation. When a feeling of this character is awakened by religious objects, though it should swallow up the accompanying emotion inspired by conscience, yet the imaginative mind entertains no doubt of the religious character of the passion which feels and moves it. It is in this region where prevails the awakening din of the storm and tempest of pious passion that Mr. Finney, as it appears to us, has constructed the chief dwelling place of religion. For the proof of this we appeal to the general tone of swelling extravagance which marks all of his sentiments, and to the habitual tenor of his illustrations and instructions. He teaches in various places and ways that the progress of religion in the heart cannot properly be set forth under the symbol of the growth of any root or sprout or seed implanted in the mind. Now it so happens that one of these figures, the growth of a seed, was employed for this very purpose on more than one occasion by our Lord himself and by his apostles. And it must be acknowledged that this is a very fit and instructive emblem. If the progress of religion be dependent on the growth of principle, that is, of that which is the beginning, or which lays the ground for a series of actions and determines them to be what they are, But inappropriate and deceptive as he represents it to be, if religion has its origin in a deep-seated act of the mind, and for its increase depends on the fitful gusts of passionate fervor, to the same effect are the many representations which he puts forth of the repugnance which a Christian will feel when brought into contact with a fellow Christian who is more spiritual than himself. This electric repulsion will only take place when their minds are under the dominion of the imaginative emotions. The Christian, whose religion is the offspring of principle and has its range among the emotions of the moral sense, will love Christian excellence and be attracted by it in proportion to its purity and brightness. The effect of greater holiness than his own, whether seen in men and angels or in God, will be to increase his admiration and draw him onward in the divine life this repellent effect of the exhibition of greater piety mr finney supposes will only take place in those who are considerably below it if those around or anywhere near the market will kindle and burn among them until it has warmed them all up in its own temperature Hence, in a prayer meeting, if a spiritual man leads who is far ahead of the rest, his prayer will repel them, but it will awaken them if they are not so far behind as to revolt at it and resist it. Quote. And again he says, in the midst of the warm expressions that are flowing forth, let an individual come in who is cold and pour his cold breath out like the damp of death, and it will make every Christian that has any feeling want to get out of the meeting." A precise account, this is, of the operation of a kind of religion, which has cut loose from principle and conscience, and surrendered itself to the emotions of the imagination. There is one argument of Mr. Finney in favor of the new measures which we have not noticed, and to which we should not allude now, but for a purpose which will soon disclose itself. This argument is, in true importance, on a perfect level with that drawn from the small clothes, wigs, and fur caps. It consists in producing the names of a great number of wise and eminent men who have been prominent in introducing innovations. All this has nothing to do with the question. It is perfectly puerile indeed to introduce it, unless these men introduce such innovations as he contends for. Among these new measure men he introduces the name of President Jonathan Edwards. And on several occasions he makes such use of the name of this great man as is calculated to leave upon the reader's mind the impression that Edwards has sanctioned his proceedings. He has no right thus to slander the dead or impose upon the living. It is well known that James Davenport, against whose extravagant fanaticism Edwards wrote at length, is redivious in Mr. Finney, and that the same scenes over which he grieved and wept have been reacted in our day under Mr. Finney's auspices. For one of his measures lay exhortation, he does distinctly claim the authority of Edwards, Quote, so much opposition, he says, was made to this practice. Nearly a hundred years ago, the President Edwards actually had to take up the subject and write a labor defense of the rights and duties of laymen, quote. We were not surprised by Mr. Finney's ignorance in confounding Mary, Queen of Scots, with bloody Queen Mary of England. We do not demand from him historical accuracy. We do not look indeed for anything like a thorough knowledge of any one subject, for should he obtain it, it would surely pine away and die for lack of company. But we were not quite prepared for such ignorance of Edward's opinions and writings can it be ignorance? Charity would dispose us to think so, but we cannot. In the same work from which Mr. Finney has taken long extracts, and to which he often refers as if familiar with his contents, Edwards makes known with all plainness his opposition to lay exhortation. He expressly condemns all lay teaching which is not, quote, in the way of conversation, end quote. He censors the layman, quote, when in a set speech, of design he directs himself to a multitude as looking that they should compose themselves to attend to what he has to say and more still when meetings are appointed on purpose to hear lay persons exhort and they take it as their business to be speakers and quote in a published letter of his to a friend who had erred in this manner he tells him quote "'You have lately gone out of the way of your duty "'and done that which did not belong to you "'in exhorting a public congregation. "'You ought to do what good you can "'by private, brotherly, humble admonitions and counsels. "'But it is too much for you to exhort public congregations "'or solemnly to set yourself by a set speech "'to counsel a room full of people unless it be children "'or those that are much your inferiors.'" These are the sentiments of Jonathan Edwards, and it is hardly possible that mister Finney should have been unacquainted with them. Whence then is this bold misrepresentation. This is one illustration of that unscrupulousness and the use of means for the attainment of his ends which he too often manifests. With perfect nonchalance he will make figures, facts, scripture, everything bend to the purpose he has in hand. We have often been reminded while reading his pages of the calculator, who, being applied to make such computations, asked his employer with perfect gravity, on which side, sir, do you wish the balance to come out? Another illustration of Mr. Finney's peculiar felicity in this way is at hand, and we will give it. In one of his lectures, when endeavoring to persuade the people not to contradict the truth preached by their lives, and as usual, inflating every sentiment to the utmost degree for the accomplishment of his purpose, he says, quote, if Jesus Christ were to come and preach and the church contradicted, it, it would fail. It has been tried once, end quote. But in another lecture where he is laboring might and main to prove that every minister will be successful in exact proportion to the amount of wisdom he employs in his ministrations, he has met with the objection that Jesus Christ was not successful in his ministry. But reader, you do not know the man if you imagine that this difficulty staggers him at all. Not in the least. In disposing of it, he begins by showing that his ministry was vastly more successful than is generally supposed and ends by proving that in fact, he was eminently successful end quote. And no doubt if his argument required it, he could prove that Christ was neither successful nor unsuccessful. this unscrupulous use of any means that seemed to offer present hope whether for the attainment of their objects within the camp or without, was early noted as a peculiar mark of the new measure men. Lyman Beecher says in a letter written eight years since, quote, I do know as incident to these new measures, there is a spirit of the most marvelous duplicity and double-dealing and lying, surpassing anything which has come up in my day." End quote. This letter was addressed to the editor of the Christian Spectator. It seems that there had been some symptoms of a disposition on a part of this editor to compromise with the new measures from a desire to promote the circulation of his work in those regions where these measures were then burning in all their fury. And the heaviness of this accusation will not be much lightened by anyone who has been an attentive observer of their movements since. There only remains to be noticed the argument for the new measures which Mr. Finney draws from their success. We shall not stop to dispute with him the position which he assumes, that the success of any measure demonstrates its wisdom and excellence. No man can maintain the ground which he takes upon the subject without denying that it forms any part of the plan of God and the government of the world to bring good out of evil. But there is no need of discussing this matter now. We will grant him the benefit of the doubt. It is too late in the day for the effect of this pill to success. The time was when an argument of this nature might have been plausibly maintained. "'Appearances were somewhat in favor of the new measures. "'At least, wherever they were carried, "'converts were multiplied, "'and though the churches were distracted, "'ministers unsettled, and various evils wrought, "'Yet it might have been contended, that, on the whole the balance was in their favor. "'But it is too late now for Mr. Finney "'to appeal in defense of his measures "'to the number of converts made by them, "'to the flourishing state of religion "'in the western part of New York, "'where they have been most used, "'and to the few tribulations Evils which have been incident to them. Indeed, he seems to have a suspicion that the public possess more information on the subject than they did a few years since, and he pours out his wrathful effusions on the informers. He is animated with the most special dislike to letter writing. So many says in high standing in the church have circulated letters which never were printed. Others have had their letters printed and circulated. There seems to have been a system of letter writing about the country, end quote. If Christians in the United States expect revivals to spread, they must give up writing letters." End quote. If the church will do all her duty, the millennium may come in this country in three years. But if this writing of letters is to be kept up, and so on, the curse of God will be on this nation and that before long." End quote. Go forward. Who would leave such a work and go to writing letters? If others choose to publish their slang and stuff, let the Lord's servants keep to their work." End quote. Who will not feel thankful that Jack Cade's day is gone and a man cannot now be hung with pen and ink horn around his neck for being able to write his name? But thanks to these much absurd letter writers, we have received their testimony, and neither Mr. Finney's assertions nor his ravings will shake the public confidence in it. It is now generally understood that the numerous converts of the new measures have been in most cases, like the morning cloud and the early dew. In some places, not a half, a fifth, or even a tenth part of them remain. They have early broken down and have not gotten up again. And of those that remain, how many are found, reveling in the excesses of enthusiastic excitement, ready to start after every new vagary that offers, and mistaken illumined appearances, the fata morgana of the falsely refracting atmosphere in which they dwell for splendid realities. How many more the chief part of whose religion consists in censoring the established order of things around them, in seeking to innovate upon the decent and orderly solemnities of divine worship, and in condemning as unconverted or cold and dead the ministers, elders, and church members who refuse to join them? from the very nature of these measures they must encounter the conscientious and decided opposition of many devout christians and hence wherever they have been introduced the churches have been distracted by internal dissensions and in many cases rent asunder Ministers who oppose them have been forced to abandon their charges, and those who have yielded to them have been unsettled by their inability to stimulate sufficiently the seared surface of the public mind, so that it is now a difficult manner among the western churches of New York to find a pastor who has been with his present flock more than two or three years." Change and confusion are the order of the day. New ministers and new measures must be tried to heighten an excitement already too great to admit of increase, or to produce one where the sensibility has been previously worn out by over-action. Rash and reckless men have everywhere rushed in and pushed manners to extremes, which the originators of these measures did not at first contemplate trickery of the most disgusting and revolting character has been employed in the conduct of religious assemblies, and the blasphemous boasts of the revival preachers have been rife throughout the land. Mothers have whipped their children with rods to make them submit to God, and in this have done right, if there be truth in the theology and fitness in the measures of Mr. Finney, Men of taste and refinement have been driven into skepticism by these frantic absurdities of what claims to the purest form of religion, or they have sought refuge in other denominations from these disorderly scenes and hours. Doctrinal errors and fanatical delusions of the wildest kind have started into rank existence.